When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. I'm Adam Coleman, back in the Cosmic Library, the show in which rules have an unruly side. In the Hebrew Bible, more specifically in the Torah, the first part of the Hebrew Bible, Moses brings law, the Ten Commandments, from God to the Israelites. He receives the commandments at Mount Sinai after the Israelites escape Egypt, and Mosaic law gives their new society structure. But the rules of Mosaic law don't ultimately lock the Israelites into a static condition. In fact, most of the Hebrew Bible's drama emerges after the reception of the Ten Commandments. The operatic highs and lows of King David, the fall of the kingdoms that the Israelites established, the prophetic declarations in Nevi'im, and the poetic reflections of what are called the wisdom books, those from Ketuvim, the third and final section of Tanakh. The wisdom books include Psalms, Ecclesiastes, lines like, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. How does a text so committed to mosaic rules and law sustain a mosaic of some of the most intense poetry and literature? How, and here's the real focus of this episode, how do regulation and wide-ranging emotional possibilities coexist, even contribute to each other? Here's Peter Cole poet and translator, quoting from the Bible. From Leviticus chapter 3. And if his offering be a goat, then he shall present it before the Lord. And he shall lay his hand upon the head of it, and kill it before the tent of meeting. And the sons of Aaron shall dash the blood thereof against the altar round about, and he shall present thereof his offering, even an offering made by fire unto the Lord the fat that covereth the inwards, and all the fat that is upon the inwards, and the two kidneys, and the fat that is upon them, which is by the loins, and the lobe above the liver, which he shall take away by the kidneys, and the priest shall make them smoke upon the altar. It is the food of the offering made by fire for a sweet savor. All the fat is the Lord's. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout your generations in all your dwellings that ye shall eat neither fat nor blood. That just, that that got into my system, the dance of it all, and the sort of rites of dismembering and remembering cast in language, somehow more distant from the physical thing, but more intimate because it's language and being said by me quietly to myself as a reader. The neuroscientist Lisa Feldman Barrett explains connections between social regulations of law and our nervous systems. There's a kind of emotional bodily link between social rules and psychology. Let's start with the social regulation between two people. Humans are are social animals. And what that means is, it means many things, but one of the things it means is that we regulate each other's nervous system. So my brain doesn't just regulate my nervous system, it also regulates my husband's and my daughter's and my friend's and maybe even yours right now, and you may be returning the favor. 
So because the words that we speak to each other are processed in the same, literally in the same, with the same circuitry as a circuitry that controls our body. And that's true actually for many animals, even birds, for example, the parts of the brain that control bird song, that bird's ability to make song and to, to sing song and to learn songs and to make sense of those songs and so on is exactly the same parts that are regulating the hearts and lungs and whatever of those animals. And same thing is true for us. So if you and I were sitting together and having coffee and we liked each other, we trusted each other, our heart rates might synchronize, our breathing might synchronize, we might start making mirror the same movements, not identically, but you know, you might put your hand, if you put your hand to your chin, I might put my hand to my cheek or, and so on and so forth. Without even really realizing it, we are the caretakers of each, ner- each other's nervous systems, right? We, we can lift the burden or add a burden to the regulation of somebody else's nervous system. And it does pose some particular problems for cultures like ours where, you know, we are a culture that privileges and prioritizes individual rights and freedoms but we have these socially dependent nervous systems, right? So I can text three little words to a friend around the world, you know, halfway who lives halfway around the world. She doesn't have to see my face or hear my voice, but those three little words can affect her breathing, her heart rate, her metabolism, her immune system. And, you know, we're uncomfortable as a culture with the idea that our words could actually inflict harm on someone in a biological way even though the evidence, I think, the scientific evidence, I think, is very clear and strong. Social interaction and literary interaction, which is really just a kind of social interaction, have physiological dimensions. You feel these things. This is one of the most complicated systems to figure out in a way, but in another way, it's really easy. It is simply something you feel and experience. Here's Elisa Gabbert, the poet and critic on the feeling of poetic experience. It's sort of a way I'm, I'm thinking of like entering a kind of vibration. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's very similar in that way to kind of listening to music that you're exactly in the mood for. It's different from a novel where I feel like when you're in a novel, you're sort of entering this whole world. And most poetry isn't like that because it doesn't have this kind of sustained narrative world building quality where you, you know, you enter the novel and you're like, oh, I'm talking to my little friends <laughs> again. <laughs> it's much more of a narrow space and it's very cerebral, but it's also very intensely emotive. And of course, you know, whenever you, whenever you make generalities about poems, like you start thinking of exceptions. But yeah, I, I keep, I keep going back to like reading Brelka during times of, Great difficulty for me, um, like during the early pandemic, just a lot of fear and uncertainty and loneliness. It helped me think and it also helped me feel reading those poems at that time. Sometimes social communication happens as poetry. Sometimes it happens as law, sometimes as both at once. And in either case, there's a connection between language and an emotional living experience. The novelist Joshua Cohen spoke of a living law, the oral law that emerges after the Torah, vitally churning away ever after. There's Torah and there's Torah Shabal Peh. And one is the written law, which is the Torah, and Torah Shabal Peh is the oral law. The oral law was the normative 
or the recording of the social norms, mores, and in an attempt at standardizing practices, rituals, and beliefs in Jewish life that arise when a people lives in one place. And when that people is dispersed, this oral law becomes written down in debates, you know, between rabbis. And this is, you know, the Mishnah, and then the commentary on the Mishnah, which is the oral law, is the Gemara. And the two together comprise the Talmud. And so to talk about the Bible in a Jewish context, what you're really talking about is only half the thing. You're talking about the written half. How do these rules, how do these laws kind of live in the world? They're laws that are continually in development, even now, in the sense of the process laid down in the Talmud is a process by which rabbis in a number of different Talmudic academies, most of them in Babylon, you know, present day Iraq, and then a number of them in Palestine, would bring up certain questions of behavior, of conduct. Everything from when can a married couple sleep together to how do you ensure that an oven is kosher to elements of tort law. You know, what happens when a neighbor's animal wanders onto your field and is injured there to theological questions. I mean, it, it, essentially any question that could be derived from human life as well as from the no, from any question that can be derived from human life is debated by these rabbis who then use the Torah and cite lines in the Torah in order to bolster their arguments. But there's no real ultimate ruling on which of these rabbis is correct or incorrect. Some people make you know, more persuasive arguments than others, but it's the process of debate and then one's tradition dictates which rules one is expected to follow. But the Bible throughout, the, the written law throughout is treated as the urtext that's used to bolster arguments because it's the ultimate law. It's very interesting to see sometimes how different rabbis use the same, in the Talmud, use the same passages from the Torah to make very, you know, different points. There's something alive in the language of the law, just as there's something alive in the language of poetry. The poet Peter Cole himself felt something intensely in the language of rules and rituals in particular. As a young poet, I think I was maybe 22 my first year out of college, I just decided I was going to read straight through the Bible in English, through Tanakh. And what hit me hardest, beyond the famous stories and the characters, if they are characters, what really hit me was the kind of mechanisms of it, and I say mechanisms because, the, you know, the Bible, we're talking about it as one book, but it's many books. It's, the, it's an anthology. It's edited and, and collected and unified in different ways, but it's many books. And probably least likely of all was the mechanism of Leviticus, where you don't have any of the famous stories. I was just totally spellbound by the choreography of sacrifice and the construction of the apparatus of sacrifice. I'm also just curious about the um, connection between a book that lays down the law, that in some sense instructs, and a book that also is open to being drawn from to make ongoing literary experiments. How does this a book that can both confine and give you rules and also do the opposite of that? <laughs> That's the tradition in, the, in a nutshell. I read the I read the Bible, for better or worse, mythically. 
as a book of provocations and irritations and situations. And I sort of came to that reading pretty much as I emerged as a poet in my early 20s. And Torah, the, the etymological root of Torah is instruction, is teaching. And so I think of it as a book of instruction, a book of teaching. I don't think of it as a book of law. I'm, I'm not entirely unobservant as a Jew, and I think of myself as a religious person, but I'm not an observ- I'm not observant in the Orthodox or even I was raised conservative. I went to Hebrew day school, all that. I have some of that in my background, but it's not something that I, I don't look to the Torah for, um, for laws, but I do look to it for instruction and for teaching. And I find that the older I get, the more I look to it, the more I'm rewarded by that looking. What is the sense of the mind, whether it's the mind that is learning and being instructed, the mind that is teaching, but what sort of mind experience do you find? Everything's in it. It's just such an enormous range of situations. And one thing I should say also about the um, the kind of tension between law and wisdom and instruction and, let's say, situational ethics or just personality and sublimity that you find in the Bible is some of it just, I find, totally repulsive and need to deal with that. That's part of the struggle. Struggle itself, right, is so central to the engagement with the text, whether it's commentary or whether it's the Jacob story and changes of names and naming is also one of the the things. But, for example, the Song of the Sea, when the Israelites cross and on the other side, they, they sing this um, song, which is strange, totally strange, and in many ways, off-putting poem. And yet it's recited every single day in the Jewish liturgy, every day, and parts of it twice a day, and then it's repeated on certain holidays. And it's weird. It's very, very weird. You feel it's a martial poem. You feel the power of it. You feel the sublimity. It's a poem of victory. You can read it mythically and it becomes something else, but it's problematic. And there are a lot of problematic things for a liberal Jew like me in the Bible. And having to deal with those is part of that that tension and part of that mindset. So you ask about the, the quality of mind or a particular kind of consciousness. There's some unconscious dimension to the text and I don't think I've ever really thought about it in a kind of deliberate fashion before you ask that question. But the text has a way of, of reading you, of reading me, of reading its readers. Certainly you find that in Genesis and the creation story, and you find that in the Garden of Eden story, and you find it in a major, major way in Song of Songs, and you find it in Psalms and this The way people return to Psalms, I live half the year in Israel, and you know, you just see people constantly reading this classic on the bus, wherever they are, as if their life depended on it. Of course, when I see that, I often don't think the loveliest of thoughts. I think they're reading a dead text, and they're politically probably have ideas that that are abhorrent to me, but I'm struck by the fact that they turn to it and turn to it. This is kind of well. I guess that's what I'm saying. The text is some kind of well, and it does keep giving back and giving back. So there's that dimension of consciousness. And then 
especially when I read the Hebrew. I have this big Kittle Bible. It's an old German, I, I guess is the, the editor was German, but beautiful, thick print. And I don't, I can't quite explain what happens, but there's, because the, the biblical Hebrew, for the most part, if you can generalize throughout the books, is, is so elemental. It's such a language of building blocks, and all the roots are transparent. The etymologies are right there and constantly being manipulated. So that when I just open, just open any page at some level and begin to let the text act on me, there's a certain intensification of awareness, of language awareness for me, that certainly goes back to childhood, but it, it's, as a poet, it matches very much my feel for the materiality of language, my desire for the exploration of that materiality, both what's actually in the words and then the white space around the words, which traditionally in, in, in rabbinic um, Judaism is, is a hot spot. It's a major place that everything's happening in the margin there in the commentary, in the what's not yet said. And that goes back to this constant refrain in, in the poetic books of the Bible, it's in Psalms, it's in Isaiah, sing unto the Lord a new song. And this sense of that the song has to be new. That's why in part I get so confused when I see these people reading, conspicuously religious people reading Psalms that way. That's an old song. Like, are they making it new? Well, I, I can't get in their minds. I assume that they are for themselves. And in fact, I've I've heard, I used to live across the street from an older woman who, when I first moved into that apartment and heard her across the alley, one Shabbat, I, I heard somebody speaking outside and, and I went out to look and I thought there was somebody on our balcony. No, it was my my neighbor praying as if she were talking to somebody. I'd never heard that, just in a totally conversational voice. Um, she was certainly making them alive and making it new. But that urge to make song new is not just in the Bible, but also in the text that the Bible has, has spawned. In rabbinic Judaism, you get uh, this constant call that prayer should be, not prayer, even song, although often the same thing, that song should be renewed like water in a well every hour. Or that... Um, Hymns are like angels, and they're created anew all the time for specific missions, and then they're gone. For a poet, that's powerful stuff, especially if you apply that out from just the domain of sacred verse to treating all poetry as really dealing with the same range of situations uh, as the Bible. Novelty can come from never-ending struggle with a book of ritual and rules and teachings, and all of this suggests psychological complexity with multiple impulses and commitments and reactions. Sigmund Freud saw a guilty experience surrounding Moses, and Freud wrote his interpretation of it in a book called Moses and Monotheism. Here's Tom DeRose, a curator at the Freud Museum in London. Moses and Monotheism is is a very late text of Freud's, one of, his, one of his final texts to be completed. And it's a text which is very kind of modern, in a way, modernist. And Freud himself says that it's a painful work for him almost to produce, in that he's depriving Jewish people of, one, of their favourite son, basically. Even more painful for him as a Jew, I guess, but also under the 
the situation of of Europe at the time in 1938 when it was finally released. So Freud had worked on on this material for for a number of years on this idea that Moses was actually an Egyptian who was a kind of uh, follower of the um of the first who's known as or supposed to be the first kind of monotheistic ruler of Akhenaten in Egypt and basically was an Egyptian that adopted the Jewish people who were settled in Egypt and then uh, took them out of Egypt after the succession of, of Akhenaten and then of course one of the most controversial things that Freud writes about is not only was Moses an Egyptian, but that the his chosen people, his elected people, then uh, murdered him. What we have after that is Freud's description of this return. Um, so there's a second Moses that he introduces. It's a very compelling narrative, very difficult to describe in a condensed way. But a second Moses appears, who will later lead the Israelites into the into the land of Canaan. Freud sees this original, the murder of the original Moses, and then the return later of the monotheistic religion, which becomes more and more strict and, and more and more monotheistic and more and more discards all kind of craven idols and stuff. He describes this as a kind of return of the repressed, you know, this memory of this of this primal murder, which itself is a repetition of, of the original murder of the father that Freud had postulated in Totem and Taboo. The, the reason why Freud describes this Jewish trait of what he calls a Geistlichkeit or spirituality, intellectuality, this very rigorous intellectuality um, that he ascribes to Moses and the monotheism that comes out after Canaan is based on a, it's very difficult to describe, it's, it's based on a, um, on a reaction formation really to the guilt of that original murder. So we have to be more strict we have to be stricter and stricter as with ourselves like the prophets he says declare you know is it right to say that for freud mosaic law biblical law is a response to guilt but also horror is the rigidity of of biblical law responding to nightmare i guess you could put it like that i mean i think you know freud talks about the the unconscious sense of guilt which is a very powerful thing it kind of binds society together and intimations of that kind of unconscious sense of guilt provoke this higher ethics, you know, this higher ethical position. There must be a further stricture because of this kind of unconscious sense of guilt. It, it, it's returning in that way. So it's, a, it's what Freud would call like a reaction formation against that original guilt. The horror, yeah, I mean, Freud frames it more in the, in the terms of guilt, I think, rather than horror, a reaction to horror. Lisa Feldman Barrett is a neuroscientist and psychologist who sees a link between mind, body, society, and law. She describes a false distinction between legal rationality and criminal emotionalism. It turns out that these things, emotions, law, rationality, all interweave with one another. For many years, the assumption was that, you know, each of us was born with circuits in the brain, in our brains, buried deep inside some animalistic, very ancient part of our brain, you know, like an inner beast. So we're each born with an inner beast, which has uh, circuits for emotion, which can be triggered. There'd be some set of changes in your body, some facial expression that you would make, some vocalization change. So you might widen your eyes and gasp and your heart rate might go up. For the most part, 
the idea is that emotions are not really easily within your control and that your other some other part of your brain the part that's responsible for rationality would be in a constant battle with these emotional parts so that your brain is kind of like a battleground for control over your behavior and if rationality wins then you know you're a moral and healthy person if emotion wins and the emotion leads you to do or say something that's ill-advised, then you're either immoral because you didn't try hard enough to control your emotions or you're mentally ill because you couldn't control yourself. You couldn't control your inner beast. Actually, no brain uh, on this planet really has a fear circuit or an anger circuit or a uh, any other kind of emotion circuit. And I should also say, you know, there aren't certain parts of your brain for emotion and certain parts for for cognition or for rationality. And they're not in a constant battle with each other. That's not really how the brain evolved. It's not how it's structured. It's not how your brain works. And that whole story is kind of a morality tale that's embedded in the law, at least in, in the West. But it's not supported by the best available evidence, scientific evidence. And that leads to a really interesting question, right? Which is, well, we feel these emotions and we see emotions in others so automatically that we believe that we are reading emotions in people's facial movements and in their body postures and in their voice and so on. And so how is it that emotions are these really kind of they feel like this basic aspect of who we are as humans, but there's not a single biological marker that you can use to objectively assess whether someone is angry or sad or afraid. How have you solved the puzzle or in what ways have you gotten beyond the puzzle? Most scientists start with the phenomenon that, we, that they see or that they experience. So you experience anger, you see someone else be afraid, or you, know, you look at an animal and you experience that animal as being afraid or as sad or, or what have you. And then you go looking in the brain of that animal or in a human for evidence of what's the circuitry or the chemist, neurochemistry or, you know, what are the biological markers for that experience. But we decided to do things a little bit differently, in part because anger, sadness, fear, and so on, these categories of emotion are not universal. There are cultures that don't have them. There are cultures that have very important emotion categories, types of emotion that we don't have in our culture. And so instead, what we did was we looked at the evolution of the human brain. How did a brain evolve? And what's its relationship to the body? How is it structured? How does it work? And then given that we have a brain like that connected to a body like ours interacting with the world, how does a brain like that give rise to the experiences of emotion, the perceptions of other people's emotions that populate our everyday life? And in the end, what we discovered is that this is a really good way to answer some pretty basic questions about the structure and function of the human brain and how a brain like ours in constant conversation with the human body and the surrounding world, how does that brain create a mind, create the mental events and the mental features that make up our you know, existence, basically? And it seems like what you yourself are studying is a kind of knitting together 
in the brain. You're finding a kind of um, a relational kind of thinking. Emotions are deployed, created, used as a way to work or to navigate or to explore the world. Yes, exactly. So I think the way that I would say it is that, you know, emotions aren't built into your brain from birth. Your brain builds emotions on the spot as you need them as a way of regulating the body in a ever-changing and only partly predictable world. So emotions aren't things like anger, sadness, fear are not things that happen to you. They're events that your brain makes and they're whole brain events. And the ingredients that your brain is using, I would say, you know, it's like a storm of entwined signals that create an emotion that emotion merges, emerges from is the same set of ingredients that you know, make a thought or make, uh, or and that control your action, that make a perception. There aren't different parts of the brain that perform these different functions. Emotion is, is a functional state, but it's a, it's a functional state that is like any other functional state in your brain. Your brain's main job is to control your body and regulate the systems of your body to keep you alive and well. And you're describing emotions as body regulators. But everything's a body regulator. So thoughts are, you know, when you peer into someone's brain and you watch them, their brain as they're thinking or as they're imagining or as they're just looking at something, their body is being regulated by the brain. It's not just emotion. It's just that because your heart tends to race in emotion or, you know, you feel, uh, you know, tightness in your chest or, you know, funny feeling in your stomach. I mean, you're not actually feeling any of those things in your body Everything you feel, everything you see, everything you every sensation you have is actually in your brain. It's just a unfortunate turn of phrase to say, you know, you feel your heart beating. You don't you don't really feel your heart beating in your heart. I mean, you feel it in your brain. But every moment, right now, we are talking to each other and we're forming words and we're listening to words and making sense of these sounds and our brains are regulating our bodies even as we speak. These systems of regulation, they are a social version of what's going on internally. There's still you know, emotional slash intellectual ways of, of regulating us. Yeah, what I would say is there's coherence between social and biological. So one thing that, you know, you have to understand is that everything that you can speak about in social terms, you can speak about in biological terms. It might be harder to speak about them in biological terms, but it has to be possible unless you believe that there is a spirit that is immaterial. So unless you're a dualist and you believe in a spirit that's immaterial, everything that happens at a social level has to be explainable in principle at a biological level. It just might be harder. So one way to think about it is a little a baby, you know, newborn human brain is not a miniature adult brain. It's a brain that is born unfinished, waiting for wiring instructions from the world. And part of the wiring instructions come from the social world. Many, many things become wired into the brain by experience. Your brain wires itself to, you know, your specific body. So if we took your brain and stuck it in somebody else's skull where the eyes were at a different distance than your eyes, you wouldn't be able to see for probably a really long time. And in addition to wiring the, the sort of constraints of the, or the regularities of your body and of the physical world, we also, brains also wire themselves to the regularities of the social world. 
And that's why symbols mean something to us and where we can get really choked up by looking at the American flag or the flag of your country if you're living in a a country that you're that you feel safe and happy in. It's why, you know, you can look at your grandmother's candlesticks or you can look at a beautiful church or whatever it is and really feel something because those symbols are regulating your nervous system in a particular way. And it's a really powerful way and it's harnessed, I think, in, well, certainly harnessed by religion, but it's also harnessed by the law. To what extent is literary work, is music, is art useful for the kind of work you're doing? I mean, one of the ways that we study the brain's control of the body is by showing people images and having them listen to music. <laughs> you know, people study this under the guise of studying emotion, but I think what they don't realize is they're just really studying how symbols and cultural artifacts regulate the body. I'm not saying, oh, you're mistakenly, you think you're studying emotion, but you're really what you're studying is this other thing. I'm saying this is what emotions are. And so this is um, what you're studying, whether you, whether you realize it or not. But I would also say that one of the interesting things about being social animals and being so socially entwined in a physical sense is that we can utilize the artifacts, the products from other people to change our physical state. And we do it all the time, right? So we might read the Bible or we might read the Quran or we might read poetry from the 14th century, words or paintings or music. We, you know, have this capacity to reach out from the past and change our physical state and therefore our mental experience in the present. It's a way, it's an yet another way that we regulate each other, sometimes across uh, centuries or millennia. How do we connect or how do you connect this regulating impulse with knowledge acquisition, with learning, with exploration? It seems like every time you reach out and make some kind of connection for, as you're saying, regulatory and something is also learned. Is, is there a, a connection, in other words, between learning and regulation? Sometimes. I should point out that regulation doesn't mean damping down. It just means coordinating and making something happen. So, so you could regulate people into a state of panic. You could regulate them into a state of um, aggression. You can, you know, it's, it's just really about a coordinating and controlling the direction of neural activity and, and therefore of the products, which are, you know, th thoughts and feelings and actions. But the question about knowledge is a, is a really interesting one. So I don't know about you, but the way it, the way it feels to me that my brain works is that I look at something, I'm, I, I hear something, and then I kind of react to it. But actually, that's not the way that brains evolved, and it's not the way that brains work. So brains actually predict what's going to happen next. And the sense data that come from the body and from the world are really there to confirm the predictions are correct. So what do I mean by that? Well, what I mean is that based on a lifetime of learning, whatever's happening right now is really the, a completed 
set of predictions. And based on that, your brain is predicting what's going to happen next, what you should do next, what you'll see next, what you'll hear next, what you'll smell next, what you'll feel next. And when the sense data arrive to your brain from the world and from your body, the data is there only to, the input is only there to confirm those predictions or to change them. Because a prediction isn't this abstract thing like, oh, gee, I think I'm going to see, you know, whatever in the next moment. A prediction is literally your brain changing the firing of its own neurons to prepare for incoming sensory information and to prepare actions so that when the sense data arrive, if there's a good match, the action's already prepared and you can just, you can just you know, produce those actions. And even our ability to, to speak to each other now is based on years and years and years and years of learning the regularities, the statistical regularities between sounds, um, which helps us understand what they mean. That's the only way that you could understand the sounds that are coming out of my mouth. And if I had said some other orifice, you would have been of my body, you'd been really surprised uh, because you were expecting me to say mouth, I, I would hope. Sounds like what you're saying is that what I call an experience, what I call an emotion, what I call a thought, or what I call uh, an event, let's say what feels like an event in my mind, bears the trace of my predictions, is at least partly shaped by my predictions, partly it is a prediction. Is that is that fair? Absolutely. When a brain is working really efficiently, it's almost completely shaped by your predictions or what we might call your knowledge, your knowledge of the world. Your knowledge of your body in the world is based on memory. It's based on past experience. And a prediction is really your brain reassembling a set, a pattern of activity, a pattern of signals in preparation for what it believes will occur in a, in a moment from now. Thank you for listening to Mosaic Mosaic, the third season of the Cosmic Library. Our guests this season include Peter Cole, the poet whose new book, Draw Me After, will be out this fall. Elisa Gabbard, poet and poetry columnist with the New York Times. Her latest book is Normal Distance. Lisa Feldman Barrett, psychologist, neuroscientist, and author of books including How Emotions Are Made. Tom DeRose, curator at the Freud Museum in London. And Joshua Cohen, the novelist whose books include Book of Numbers. This episode, we talked about emotions and law. Next up, we're thinking about the vexed mental state at the hinge of emotions and law. With the help of a Bible interpreter named Sigmund Freud, 